Some of the cliches about advertising in the 1980s weren't really my lived experience. You can't effectively argue unless you can see the opposite point of view. I think the culture of the organisation is the thing that makes a difference. Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. Our guest on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast is Sue Uniman. Sue is the Chief Transformation Officer of Mediacom in the UK. In a world that is changing faster than any of us can quite get used to, business needs people who can not only see the next change coming, but can also explain it to the rest of us. Sue is one of those rare people, and she's been called a clarifier. The editor-in-chief of Campaign has said that Sue has led the way when it comes to driving change and challenging stereotypes. In her current role, she drives transformations for Mediacom and for their clients. But more than that, Sue has authored three books, The Longing, The Key to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion and Equity at Work, The Glass Wall, Success Strategies for Women at Work and Businesses that Mean Business, and Tell the Truth, Honesty is Your Most Powerful Marketing Tool. So, Sue, welcome to the uh, Work or Happiness podcast. Uh, just to start, tell us a bit about your education and your early career. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I think there was a turning point in the early years of my education that made me the woman that I am today. I went to um, a grammar school and it was an all-girls grammar school. And in the first two years of senior school, if you got six A minuses in a row or three A's in a row, you got a good work mark. And if you got a good work mark, you um, had it signed up in the headmistress's office. And then you got your name read out at the end of term or end of half term assembly. So there was sort of, you know, a number of occasions across the year. And I was a steady B, B plus at best, B minus student. And my best friend at school, um, who I sat next to, um, used to get good work marks signed up all the time. And she'd say every week, she'd say, oh, I'm going to get my good work mark signed up. Um, are you coming? And I'd go, I haven't got to this week, week after week. Yeah. And I'd sit in these assemblies and I genuinely used to sit there thinking maybe they'll read my name out by mistake. And of course they didn't read my name out by mistake. And me and my best friend then fell out. We had a big row about something, which I could go into in detail, but I probably won't today because it's, you know, let's move on. Um, and I made another best friend instead, um, a girl who was also called Susan. And she looked at my work and she said some things to me about the technique, how I was doing my work. So, for example, she said to me, and I look back now on my, what, 11, 12-year-old self and go, why could I not work this out? But, for example, she said to me, you know you're underlining the header at the moment. Well, you're not using a ruler, you're just doing it freehand. And if you used a ruler, then that might get you from a B plus to an A minus. And she was really helpful. And there were just a number of techniques that she really helped me on that I couldn't work out myself. 
And although I then went into year three and I, you couldn't get your name read out in assembly, it was a real turning point for me. This idea that you could fulfill extra potential through technique. And I then basically aced my O-levels as they were in those days. And I was the only um, girl in my year to get into Oxford, um, which you could then do fourth term unconditionally. Um, and so these techniques really changed the course of my entire life. And it's one of my drives, I'd say, and one of the things that's led me to the book writing, actually, and maybe the transformation role, is that I hate it when potential isn't fulfilled because of a lack of a technique. And yet there are so many techniques, and I'm sure you've talked about a lot of them on this podcast, but, you know, things that, that we talk about in, in the belonging book, like how to gain you know, courage to be a good ally, the technique is breathing. And you think, well, don't we all know how to breathe? But somehow we've reached where we are today without knowing how to breathe to calm ourselves down. And so top tip for anybody underlined with a ruler, but I'm sure everybody else knows that apart from me. But, but I, I would say that my, I was a very, very slow starter at school once I got some techniques nailed um, and my sister, my elder sister also helped me with techniques um, later on. That was the thing that really made a difference. And, and so what did you read at Oxford? History. And how did you enjoy that? I loved it, actually. I really loved it because it's storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's storytelling. It's about empathising and understanding people in their own time. And, you know, you have to really think hard about how to do that. It's about taking dodgy data, some of which is very unreliable, and making judgments about what's accurate and what isn't accurate and, and being um, kind of seeing the bigger picture, which I think is very important to, to me and to Mediacom now. But over and above all, that education taught me how to argue. And uh, maybe I'm sometimes too good at arguing almost, but... I think, and I, I wonder if you'd think the same, you can't effectively argue unless you can see the opposite point of view. And I think that's what I learned at university. So that was the big technique learned there. So at school, yeah. it was about rulers and the fact that there were techniques. And at university, it was about how to argue and seeing the other person's point of view. Yeah. And I think that whatever subject I'd read, I think that's what I would have taken out of it. Um, and it wasn't really until I finished that I understood that that's what I'd learned and that, that that was the most valuable thing that I'd learned. So where did life take you then? You graduated? I graduated and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had quite a long list of things I didn't really want to do, um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I ended up as a lot of people, I think, at that time in my position did, which was I decided that I was going to do a law conversion course and become a barrister. And I was going to take a year off, hadn't taken a year off before I went to uni. And after a few months of this year off, um, I got really fed up of not having any money. Um, you know, I'd been, been being a penniless student and I'd sort of so, suddenly I, I, I had this urge to, you know, I don't know, be able to afford a cup of coffee and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I got myself a, a job in advertising and because because that meant that I could move away from home and get some independence, 
actually, I never took up the law conversion course and I've stayed in advertising ever since. And what do you like about advertising? I really like the fact that it combines creativity and commercialism. So not many jobs do that quite as actively. I mean, I think in a sense, all jobs involve creativity and commercialism if they're paid for. But I think with advertising, the objective is, is to, and, and media, of course, which is my part of it, the objective is to transform a business through creative and innovative and different ideas. And I like new stuff. I, I think I, I think I always have, um, but I still like new stuff a lot. And in fact, I, I learned a new skill um, only last year. I'm a, I'm a qualified agile scrum master, um, uh, should you need one. Um, and, Very good. You know, I, I, I think that that sense that there's always something new happening, there's always something new going on, and that if you can get on the leading edge of that, then you can create competitive advantage. I find that really rewarding. And when you went into media after university, what was your mm. first job there? I was a TV time buyer. And in those days, um, TV, such a long time ago, TV was the big medium. Um, I mean, it still is, it still is very effective. But in those days, you, they were, uh, there was only ITV and then soon after that, there was ITV in Channel 4. And when I was buying spots, you had to bid for them at the right price so that you wouldn't get preempted by someone coming along and bidding more, but also not paying too much for them. So it had an element of trading in it, which I think I learned a lot from because I don't think I'd had much idea about that kind of thing before that. Um, but the other thing I think about it is that it was always, you know, media people like effectiveness. They like to know the return on the money that's being spent. And that was something that was ingrained on me from a very early age, which was what's the outcome of these spots that you're buying? You know, why, why are you buying them in, in, I think Taggart was the big program when I was uh, buying airtime. Why are you buying them in Taggart and uh, not, you know, in um, uh, blockbusters, not putting them all in blockbusters, for example. And I think that, that it's that sort of thinking that together with the, the human insight that, that I've always found really fascinating. And in some ways, my role hasn't changed at all. So my job, you know, when I started out in the 80s was to spend advertising pounds so that we could um, drive a return on investment and um, persuade people that, um, you know, what one brand had competitive advantage over another or, or one retailer is the place to go rather than another one. And although everything has got much, much more complicated and there are many, many more media to choose from now because TV is not TV, it's audio visual and so is TikTok and, you know, so uh, is um, advertising on YouTube and so is advertiser funded content. Making all of those decisions has got more complicated, but the overall objective is driving return on investment, driving effectiveness and really understanding the target audience that you're trying to reach. And before we talk a little about your current job, uh, Chief Transformation Officer at um, MediaCon, tell us a little about what the advertising world was like when you went into it in the 1980s. 
Well, you know the saying, it was acceptable in the 80s. Well, as far as I was concerned, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so I, my my early days, I kind of went from, um, you know, the, uh, the what are they called, the dream, dreaming spies of, of Oxford into TV trading. And it was very macho. And it, there was a lot of behaviour that, you know, would now be absolutely frowned on and, and unacceptable. And you really had to sink or swim. You had to stand up for yourself. Um, my first boss actually was a woman, which was quite unusual in those days. And one of the motivations for writing the second of my books, The Glass Wall, was because my first boss was a woman. And actually, because it was the 80s, the prime minister was a, a woman. And I sort of came into the world of advertising thinking that um, very soon every other boss would be a woman and every other prime minister or politician would be a woman and part of the reason for writing the glass wall which I did with my friend Catherine Jacob in 2016 was that we suddenly I suddenly woke up looked round, and thought well at Mediacom we've had a very um, long heritage and strong succession of, of women leaders but it isn't like that elsewhere in the industry and although some sectors are obviously better than others in terms of um, marketing and um, business and advertising, of course, it's still true that there's gender pay gaps um, in a lot of sectors. And of course, that we, it's certainly not true that every other politician is, is a woman yet, and yet women are 50% of the population. So yes, there, there was, you know, overt sexism, there was overt racism, you know, there was a strong atmosphere of media banter, which you were supposed to find amusing. Um, I, I'm very bad at something. Um, I'm really bad at hiding my feelings. And it, it wasn't really until I went to work at the company that I have remained at for a ridiculously long amount of time, very long amount of time that I really felt as though I could be myself and be authentic in the workplace. So some of the experiences that I've written about in terms of belonging and inclusion have very much come from that memory. And, 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 and of course, all the people we've spoken to shared experiences of what it is when you don't feel like you belong in the workplace, um, where you don't feel as though, you know, your boss has got your back. Um, those, those times are tough, right? They are, and, and we'll explore your books because they do a fantastic job at setting out all of the opportunities and, and the challenges. But, but reflecting back now on the 80s and comparing it to the 2020s, um, what was good and bad about advertising in the 80s and what's good and bad about advertising in the 2020s as a, as a job, as a career for somebody? I think then and now, if you like new stuff, if you like innovation, um, there's just even more of it now than there used to be. So, so the pace of change is, is you know, breathtaking. Um, if you are analytical and you like to really understand data and its uses and what can, what can be done about it, then I think advertising is a great career for you, but also for the very creative. It's weird, really. Some of the cliches about advertising in the 1980s weren't really my lived experience. Now, that might be because I wasn't out at the long lunches that, you know, are famous from those times um, as often as other people. But 
there is probably more work now and less of that. But personally, I, you know, sometimes people say about the 1980s that if you can remember it, then you weren't there. That that wasn't really my, I'd be making it up if I said that I remember that or that I, you know, massively regret that those those things um, have passed on. I think it's what I think about jobs generally. I'm not sure that the sector that you work in is the thing that makes the difference. I think the culture of the organisation is the thing that makes the difference. And you could be in any job. If the culture is terrible, you'll be miserable and life is too short for that. If the culture is brilliant, you will love going to work every day. And culture is a fragile thing. I mean, you know, it can it can change because the wind changes or, you know, a boss changes. Um, I would recommend advertising to anybody out there, but I'd, rec- I'd over and above that, I'd recommend making sure that you feel supported by the culture and that you belong in the culture that you're joining. And the thing that's difficult about this, which is what we always say, is that, of course, when you go for a job interview, you spend a, you know, a few hours at, at best in a series of interviews you don't actually find out the culture until you're actually living that experience. Um, but the important thing is to make sure that it's allowing you to thrive. And, and let's just talk a little now about your, your current role. So you're the Chief Transformation Officer. What, what is a Chief Transformation Officer? It's such a good question, isn't it? So in a lot of businesses, it's confined to digital transformation. Um, We actually believe that um, we're on an ongoing process of transformation. It doesn't just belong to one person or one department. My role as Chief Transformation Officer is really to represent and to check in that we are at the leading edge of what we do and that we are helping our clients with which changes are important and which ones are not. So um, it's a great quote that I I sometimes um, talk about from a a chief marketing officer who says that he gets 200 emails a day. Each one of them are saying that this is the latest amazing new thing. And if he doesn't take advantage of it, he's losing out. And he says, I can't even open 200 emails a day, let alone make a decision between which of the 200 things a day might be relevant and important. So at MediaCon, we regard that as our role and um, I help you know, lead that for the industry. But um, I also are, um, have been involved in some specific transformations for us as a business. The most recent one of which has been our transformation into Agile Ways of Working, um, which um, I talked about, which I led last year. And, and what does that mean? So you explain how that works. Agile Ways of Working, I first came across this because I was working with um, the people that set up Gov.uk. And um, obviously you're very young, Mark, but you're young, you're old enough to remember what it was like when you used to have to go and get apply for a driving license and how complicated it was and how difficult it was. And the Gov.uk people are the people that transformed that. So um, I remember when my youngest was um, uh, turning uh, 17 and and you know, we said, well, you know, get yourself a provisional license and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll sort out some driving license for you. And she um, 
let, sort of left it to the last minute and I was worried like a you know normal mother was worrying about it but and she said no it'll be fine and went on the gov.uk site and they lifted her proof of identity from her national insurance number they lifted her um picture from her passport and the whole thing took about five minutes and very different to what it used to be like and that transformation came about because of agile ways of working and it's a very very different form of work so here's one example rather than everybody in the team individually having their own to-do list there is a shared to-do list or kanban where everybody is allocated tasks that they say they've got time to do um, but everybody can see what everybody else is working on so there's there's no oh, I don't know what so-and-so is doing until they come back with it. I can't move it on. Then another important thing is that rather than have a weekly catch-up, which, you know, many people still do, and, you know, normally, in, not infrequently, the minutes will be a bit late from the last catch-up, and then, you know, you spend quarter of an hour sort of tossing over the minutes and quarter of an hour explaining why you didn't have time to do the things that you said you were going to do from last week because you got called into a very important other thing, and so you can do that. Um, and then maybe there's a quarter of an hour of productivity and then everyone chats about the weekend. Um, rather than do that, you might have 15 minute standups four times a week. So 9.15 every morning and three simple questions. What did you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And are there any barriers? And so it completely transforms in a radical way, both how everyone is transparent about what everybody else is working on, but also it gets rid of those moments in process when you really need somebody else to do something first and you're having to wait on them because they've got called into something else. So it's very much a mindset. It's a mindset of flexibility, of adaptability, of transparency. Um, and uh, it's what, what and, and once, and, and once you, it's also very unhierarchical, which I like. And so once you get sold on it, it's um, it really does make a difference. It's made a big difference to the people at, at Mediacom. And so you've been described as a clarifier, as somebody that can take complex situations, issues, and make them simpler for people to understand. So how how do you do that? Is that an innate skill, or is that one of those techniques you've learned? It's definitely technique, and it comes from two places. I think, first of all, it comes from the place of I really don't mind asking stupid questions. So um, if I don't understand something, I will just keep asking questions until I understand it and it makes sense to me. And um, if there's a new acronym, I will find out what the acronym is and, um, uh, you know, sort of make sense of it in my in my head. So I think asking lots of questions is one of those techniques that that's how you understand enough to clarify. And then the other point is, is that um, everything really can be put into everyday language. And um, in advertising and in media, we do love jargon. And I guess I don't love jargon. So when I come across it, I like to put it in terms that I can easily understand. But there is one other thing as well. And that's the technique of related worlds or kind of analogies, I suppose. And it's that thing where when something new comes along and it might be a big change and it might be really different or it actually might be something that's really true to human nature. So when Facebook first came along, 
And I remember, you know, watching my kids and thinking, uh, you know, they will never have to lose touch with anyone that they ever meet. They'll be able to stay in touch with all the people that they meet when they're kids if they want to. And then I thought about that and I thought that's been true of most of humankind. So most of us, for most of human civilization, haven't moved very far from where we grew up. Grew up. And for um, most people, they knew the same people all their lives. And so suddenly Facebook, rather than being something that's new and, you know, digital and, you know, is it, is it, is it for me? Suddenly becomes, oh, no, 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 actually that's human nature. And what we've got now is a tool and an application that allows us to be true to how humanity has been throughout millennia. And that's what I think that means. And let's just talk um, for a while about your book. So you published three books. Yeah. Um, if we, um, I mean, let's start with The Glass Wall. We, we talked about that published in 2016. So, and you said that um, uh, the genesis of it was looking around you and perhaps thinking that um, women in the workplace haven't come far enough. But, but tell us about The Glass Wall, what motivates you to write it and what you hope the consequences will be of people reading it. So it was actually not my idea. It was uh, an idea of uh, uh, my boss, Nick Lawson. Um, I was going to do an update to my first book, Tell the Truth, Honesty is Your Most Powerful Marketing Tool. Um, and I asked for his support in that. And he said, I will support you in that. But actually, that's not the book you should write. You should write the book about women in business. And women at work and when he first said it I thought oh, I don't know I don't know do we, do we still need that in 2016 and Sheryl Sandberg had just published Lean In which is a you know a fabulous book but I think it's a book for extroverts which I am not we talked about a little bit about this before um, and uh, you know that whole kind of lean in and put your hand up for everything I think if I'd read that when I was 25 I would have wanted to go back to bed um, so we started to go out and actually talk to women that we knew, but also men that we knew that supported women about, again, techniques. So the glass wall is purely a technique book. And the idea of the glass wall, the really, re reason it's the glass wall and not the glass ceiling is because the glass ceiling implies that it only happens when you reach the top of your career. Whereas the glass wall, which is the difference or the barrier between how women expect, and I'm, First of all, let me say that everyone who self-assigns as a woman is included in this. But secondly, let me say, of course, I'm generalizing because it's all, you know, um, a continuum. But there are lots of rules in the workplace that women seem surprised about and unfamiliar with, but which men seem to take naturally. And so if I give you an example of that, and this would be an example of the glass wall, I know many women and this came up in a lot of conversations and a lot of our talks that we gave, who will do anything for the business that they work for. They will work weekends. They will work really late. They will, you know, you know, put their heart and their passion into delivering. And the one thing that they will not do is show off about the work that they've done. And women seem to come into the workplace thinking that if they do a really good job, that's enough. Men seem to come into the workplace understanding that they need to do a really good job and they also need to let people know about it. And so 
one of our tips and techniques and none of the glass wall is about being more like a man but what the glass wall is is pragmatic feminism it's this is what's going on if you're sitting there and you're wondering why your career isn't progressing as, as fast as it should then there are over 40 tips and techniques that will explain what it is that's going on and what you can do about it within your comfort zone I mean, that's very good. And I would suggest that men read it too, because um, I, I'm personally guilty of the, um, the flaw you just mentioned. And I can remember, so uh, a long, long while ago, um, there was um, uh, a colleague of mine and myself up for promotion. And I can remember saying to the colleague, look, my complete focus is on looking after my team and my team doing a great job. And if we do a great job, then we'll be recognised. And he said to me, gosh, you're the naive, Mark. There are four people who are going to make the decision about who gets this promotion. And my focus is on making sure they all know that I'm the right person. And um, much to my um, disappointment, um, my colleague got the job and I didn't. Um, and it was quite a painful lesson um, and a totally different philosophy. So I suspect that there are quite a few men who could also read The Glass Wall and learn uh, A, to be empathetic, but also learn some lessons as well. I mean, I think the other thing is, is as a manager, who do you really want to promote? Do you want to promote the person who's very good at getting promoted? Or do you want to promote the person who's going to be very good at the job into which you're promoting them? And as managers, we, it's incumbent on us all to understand that. And we spoke to one manager for this book who told us about um, a, a period where he had both a, a man and a woman working for them and they both were about to be appointed to be director and so he had a conversation with them both saying you know here's these six things that I think you need to deliver and then we'll promote you and he said that the man came back to him within four weeks and said what have you done about my promotion and and he said well have you done the things and he went no no no, no. he said but I've thought about it and now that you've mentioned my promotion I think we should get on with it I'm working on those things and you know you don't recommend me I think I might go to your boss and talk to him about it and alternatively he went back to the woman after six months and said why haven't you come back to me about your promotion and she said well I'm still working on the very good list of six things and I haven't done them yet now they both got promoted they're both brilliant at their jobs I'm sure but what's to say that the speed of one's promotion was you know in the right order yeah great point Sue um so let's go back to your first book now. Um, I'm really keen to know why you wrote a book about tell the truth and people being authentic. So where did that come from? It's very much a book of its time, although I think it still has lessons that are, are relevant today. But it came about with the explosion of social media and the massive change in all our shopping habits from, from Amazon and from shopping online. So if we, if we think back to the early 2000s, um, when you went into, let's take Woolworths, because that was a place you might have gone in those days. When you went into Woolworths and picked up an object to buy it, people didn't come rushing up to you and go, would you like to know what I think about that product? I'm not sure. I, I only give it two stars. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not. And of course, once Amazon came along, you knew what everybody else thought about the product that you were about to buy. And, and now it's second nature to us, but it was a big difference. And advertising at the time was still very much focused on sell the sizzle, the old quotation, sell the sizzle, not the steak. But the problem was, was that with the advent of the smartphone, everybody, everybody with a smartphone could work out 
the quality of the stake, the provenance of the stake, the comparable price of the stake, uh, what uh, everybody you know else thought about the the quality of the stake um, within seconds. So we wanted to write a book that was a real rallying cry to marketers to say selling the sizzle not the steak it's just not good enough and you know even now to this day any brand that talks about how good they are at listening to their customers in advertising and how empathetic they are but actually doesn't have a good customer complaints procedure or doesn't have a smooth customer experience journey um, all the way through to, to, to sales and um, indeed complaints, then once again, that's that, there's an authenticity gap. And through that authenticity gap, you know, that that's a that's that's a leaky bucket of uh, revenue. Let's just talk about your your third book, your newest book, mm. uh, Belonging. Tell us why you decided to write it and, and why people should read it. Belonging actually came out of the talks from The Glass Wall. So um, The Glass Wall was a bestseller and we gave over 150 talks, me and my co-author, uh, Catherine Jacob, who also wrote Belonging with me together with um, Mark Edwards. Um, and um, we would give the talk about glass wall techniques and how to get on at work. And then very often somebody in the audience and this was back in the in real life days so when we were giving a talk we were giving a talk in a room and the room would be full of people but there would be a limit to the number of people that could be in the room and the same question kept coming up which is that a woman in the audience would put her hand up and say I've got a question and it's not for Sue and Catherine it's actually for the organizers of the talk and she'd say can I just ask and she'd look around the room where are all the men and the organizers of the talk would say well it's this is a fast track you know our fast track women talk or you know it's international women's day and so that's why we're having this talk or you know this is a talk that's that's you know you know to, to purely to help and encourage the, the the women in the company and then the questioner would say if we only talk to ourselves how is anything ever going to change and i thought that was so powerful and it means that all of the work and all of the agency on fixing something that is unfair and is unfair in a way that isn't good for business because it's now, you know, very well accepted fact that more diverse boards and senior management drive profitability. So I think McKinsey says 35% better returns from best, best quartile companies on ter in terms of diversity at the top. And so it's not just whether it's fair or not, it's also about what's good for business. And so we thought, okay, we want to do an investigation about bringing men into that conversation. But we also realized that many of the issues that were, as, as indeed you've said, that were holding women back in terms of reaching their um, real potential um, in their careers, were also holding back a host of other people as well. So we went out and we did uh, lots of research and lots of interviews about belonging at work and how people feel because I think and I think you and I both had the you know good experiences in this respect when you do feel that you can truly be yourself at work it frees you up for the work right it's it's if you don't you know this term covering if you have to cover if you have to pretend that you are not who you really are it's actually takes up an awful lot of energy 
And that energy would otherwise be driving the business forward, which explains why diversity of thinking and diversity of people gets you better outcomes in terms of profitability. So the research was really interesting. It was also quite alarming. So um, it was carried out for us by a company called uh, Dynata in the UK and the US. But in the UK, if we focus on that, we found that one in three people don't think that they belong in the workplace. That's 11 million people. That's, you know, you're in a meeting with two colleagues. You, if you feel like you belong, one of your lovely colleagues does not feel that they belong and they are perhaps pretending that they do and, and that's using up both energy and, and you know, it, it is, is emotionally difficult. Um, we also found that there was a very, very high level of people who had experienced harassment or bias or inappropriate behaviour at work. And, and this really troubled me. So it was, it was one in three overall. But for some groups, it was much higher figures. So much higher figures for the under 25s, for people with disability, um, for um, uh, people of mixed race. Um, and those are things, that's where I sort of, I suppose, suddenly thought, this isn't just a book about good business practice. This is a book about making sure people are not unhappy at work because you spend too much time at work to be unhappy there right yeah i agree no i agree and and when you reflect now on your three books is there a theme is there something that that burns in you to write these books a sense of justice or social justice what what's because it's a lot of work to write one book uh, but to write three and to do your day job is a lot, lot of work. So what is it that motivates you to do them? Well, I should first, first of all say that I've had co-authors for all of my books. So I, ha I haven't had, had to do all the heavy lifting um, and that my co-authors co are all fabulous. But it's right back to the conversation that we had at the beginning, which is about fulfilling potential and about techniques that can help you fulfill potential um, and also people that help you fulfill your potential and that help that I got from my friend at school and from my, from my sister um, that's that that help ought to be available we ought to if we all helped each other then everybody rises and I think that the burning thing for me is I don't like it if people self-limit and I think a lot of this self-limit I think that having to cover at work is you know innately limiting because you're having to put lots of energy into that and I think that there is so much potential for improved work-life blend happiness at work better outcomes professionally better profitability if more people help each other with those techniques but also are, are good allies to each other and and you know there's so many reasons why you might not belong at work I mean, there's been this idea floating around of, you know, cultural fit. Does he fit culturally? And I think cultural fit is not the greatest expression in the world because it implies that there's one way of being. And if you don't fit it, then, then, then you're not part of the team. That's not diversity. What you want is you want a cultural mix. You want a cultural mix of people that is flexible, that changes, where people complement each other, um, 
where you know my we I can acknowledge my weakness because it's your strength and and your strength is 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 my weakness and so we can help each other um I said that we, it was my weakness twice didn't I your weakness is my strength so we can help each other um and then everybody rises really and I think when you've got a situation at work where you have to succeed by pushing down your colleagues and your peers then that makes for a, a very difficult um, workplace and I think when you have to pretend to be other than you, you're not to fit in and you know that could be because everybody else is an extrovert or everybody else is an introvert or everybody else is going skiing or you know everybody else likes a drink and you you know you perhaps you don't for, for physical or, or just you don't like a drink or it could be religious reasons if you've got to pretend to go along to fit in then I think that's a that's that's a real problem and last of all, let me ask you a huge question. You are responsible for transformation and you're a clarifier. So what are the big changes you see in the future? What's going to happen next in the workplace or in advertising or the world even? How do you see the future soon? Well, I think it's very difficult to ask about the world at the moment because I think none of us know the answer to that at the moment. And we are in difficult times I really I'm going to answer your question by quoting Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos says the man who runs Amazon or used to run Amazon founded Amazon he used to say everyone's obsessed with how things are going to change and how people are going to change and the really interesting question is what stays the same you know we as people as human beings we haven't really evolved very much for hundreds of thousands of, of, of years and we are driven by a, a set of drives, you know, family, loyalty, humanity, citizenship, um, uh, you know, uh, avoiding distress. And those things say, stay true and they are eternal. So this is what I would say. I would say that if there is something new that comes along, the test of it, the question about it, is where it fits in terms of you know, hierarchies of, of human needs, where it fits in terms of basic human drives. What I do believe is, and we saw this very much in the research from the Belonging book, the under 25s, the under 30s are not happy with the current world of work. Whereas I think when I went into the workplace and we, you know, if you're taking me back to the 80s, I sort of thought, well, you're all a bit strange, but, you know, I, I, I need to pay my rent and, and so I'll put up with it. I think that the gener that generation now are coming into the world of work and they're going, these are not our values. This is not how we think we should live our lives. And it's not us that have to change to fit in with you. We won't hang about. We won't give you our talent unless you as a business change. So I am very much of the view that we should back youth, that we should back again, um, you know, that, that those, those newer cultures in the workplace as opposed to some heritage cultures that you do hear are still floating around. I was in a conversation with um, someone who's just entered the world of work and I was very surprised at some of the things he was saying he was having to put up with from his immediate boss um, and I think that that's going to change. And I think that's going to change radically. 
And I think if you look into the more established sectors, so perhaps, you know, the world of, of, of you know, politics and, and, and financial services, we will see those considerations be more and more important and we will see, we will see radical change. So thank you very much for um, talking to us about uh, your career in advertising, um, about your books, about um, diversity and the inclusion. Um, all of Sue's books are available uh, in the uh, Workall Library. Uh, if you'd like to go there, you'll find them. We wish you continued success and thank you for sharing with us so many uh, great insights about the world that you've enjoyed over the last however many years. Thank you. I, I, I just want to say thank you so much. I was so honoured to be invited on. I have admired your career from afar. And so this is absolutely a fangirl moment for me. So thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.